0: The Jodcast, the best things come in pairs, with Adam Davison George Bender, Liz Guzman, Ian McDonald, Mark Perver, and Christina Smith. The Jodcast, November 2012, extra edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. I have Adam and Mark with me in the studio. Hello, guys. Hello. Hello. In the show this time, we have Christina talking to Dr. René Breton about neutron star mass measurements using irradiative binaries, and Dr. Ian McDonnell answers your Ask an Astronomer questions. But first, before all of that, here's George Spendo speaking to Malcolm Gray in the Bite.
1: Joining us on this month's Bite is Malcolm Gray, who is Senior Lecturer at the University of Manchester. Uh, hello, Malcolm. Hello. So Malcolm uh, works on things called masers. Uh, Malcolm, can you tell us uh, something about masers? Uh, First of all, how masers work, what masers are?
2: Well, most people would be much more familiar with the the laser, which stands for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. And if you just replace light by microwave, uh, that's a maser. So it's microwave amplification of stimulated emission
1: and what makes uh, laser or maser emission uh different from ordinary light emission from like from an ordinary light bulb
2: uh well it it has um a very very small angular size sources usually which are very very bright uh, so if you if you measure something called the the brightness temperature you can get values of uh, perhaps 10 to the 8 to 10 to the 11 kelvin which is very very much hotter than than the kinetic temperature of the gas in the source which tells you that it's been amplified by a large factor. The, the kinetic temperature would be the temperature that you you would measure if you relied on the speed of the of the molecules in in the gas.
1: Okay, and where do we find these masers in space?
2: Well, there are, uh, there are a variety of sources at different scales so that the smallest ones are um, found in the the coma of comets in in our own solar system, they're found in star forming regions, so the the, the birth of stars. They're found in highly evolved stars and the the atmospheres of of those uh, supernova remnants uh, and the the mega-maser galaxies, which are the the cores of some external galaxies.
1: So it sounds like they're found in all sorts of places. It's almost worth asking where they aren't found, but that would get sort of silly. <laughs> Do you like to study masers in any specific location?
2: I, I think I've personally studied all, all of those source types except the, uh, co- the local comets.
1: So masers are found in different places. Uh, are they produced by different mechanisms as well? Uh,
2: yes, very de- very definitely. There are a number of, of maser molecules. and um, The first one discovered was was OH or hydroxyl, uh, and uh, many of the sources are, are OH masers. There are also masers, many lines in water, uh, methanol, ammonia, and there are um, some some rarer uh, maser types in uh, hydrogen cyanide, for example. Um, Silicon monoxide is quite common, so there are, are quite a few molecules. the, the largest maser mole- molecule so far known is methanol.
1: In your research, do you focus on a specific uh, molecule, or do you look at
2: all of them? Uh, most of my research has been based on OH water and silicon monoxide masers.
1: And what do we learn specifically from looking at the OH masers?
2: OH masers have been used as astronomical tools in a, a variety of uh, ways. One, one of the, the best uses of OH is to measure magnetic fields, and they have what's called a Zeeman effect of hyperfine structure. So, a, a relatively small field of a few milligauss. Will give a, a large splitting, and if, if you measure that that splitting between two polarized,
1: so so you lines, s- when you say splitting, you mean that you see two different frequencies, right? Uh, the, the
2: the the line is, is split into two polarized um, hands, left and right hand polarized lines.
1: So so you can, so you can actually look at like. The emission in two different frequencies, and like compare the relative intensities in those two different frequencies, and be able to tell how strong the magnetic field is. Uh,
2: yeah, it, it's actually it's actually the, the the splitting between the the left and right hand polarized lines. Oh, which you mean the you separation? Position. Correct. Yes.
1: Oh, the separation. Yes. So that that's actually uh, very useful for probing magnetic fields. Yes. You mentioned that there are uh, various different types of masers. Um, can you tell us if the different types of masers are uh, all found all over the place, or are there specific masers found in specific places and specific objects?
2: Uh, there are specific types in specific objects, but with with some overlap. For example, in the highly evolved stars, the, the oxygen-rich stars tend to have um, silicon monoxide, water, and hydroxyl masers, because there's free oxygen in those objects, whereas carbon stars... Tend to have uh, hydrogen cyanide mazes because in those there is free carbon, so it it depends largely on on the chemistry of those stars uh, star forming regions have hydroxyl water, formaldehyde, and ammonia mazes, and again that that depends really on on the pumping that's available in those objects.
1: So you mentioned that there are masers in other galaxies. Can you tell us uh, a little bit more maybe about your personal interest in masers in other galaxies?
2: The masers in external galaxies are, are associated with um, two types of activity. There are, broadly speaking, OH masers, um, hydroxyl masers, that are associated with, with what's called starburst activity in uh, in a galaxy where uh, there is a very, very high rate of star formation and um dust reradiates a lot of the ultraviolet light from those stars as infrared and this pumps the maser and there's another type um again broadly speaking water masers that that uh, form in a a dusty torus around a black hole at the center of certain um, active galactic nuclei and and these have been used for distance measurements and the determination of the Hubble constant.
1: Okay, so when you say masers have been used to measure distances, is that to measure distances to the galaxies with the black holes, or also to the starburst galaxies. Uh,
2: it, it relies on the the um, toroidal structure, so it's it's to so uh,
1: so it's the uh, the water maser. So it's the masers around the black holes, Correct, specifically. Yes, yes. Now, I've also been told that you're working on a book as well. Can you tell us a little bit about what's going to be in the book?
2: Uh, well, the book is actually finished. Uh, it's been published by Cambridge University Press. Um, it's called Major Sources in Astrophysics.
1: Oh, when was it published? This year?
2: Uh, yes, in the the spring of this year.
1: Oh, so very recently. How did you decide to begin writing a book? Were you invited to write a book or was this just something that you felt compelled to do because nobody else had like, written a book on masers yet?
2: I was invited to, to write this book by um, someone at Cambridge University Press and I thought it was a good opportunity because the last uh, major book on this subject um, was published around
1: 1992. Oh, so the, it's um, you have to update stuff for the past 20 years worth of research. That actually sounds like quite a bit of work to uh, review what's been done since the last book. How much of the uh, book is actually uh, based on research that you know, and then how much of it was uh, new material for you?
2: Well, I think there's, a, there's an introductory chapter uh, that goes over a lot of what's been known before, and uh, uh, a, a theory chapter, which is certainly not not new stuff. But I, I think in the, uh, the later chapters, there is a, it's rather more new material. Um, for example, the, the the VLBA interferometer in the United States was was not operational when the last book was written, uh, and that's produced a lot of um, very nice maser images. Um, so there have been wide developments in...
1: Are there um, any other telescopes besides the VLBA which have been very important in the past 20 years?
2: Oh, right, well, the, the, the Merlin... Array in the UK has been upgraded to to E-merlin, for example.
1: Oh, so you're using E-merlin for uh, the new E-merlin uh, array for your research?
2: Uh, yeah, as soon as it's uh, available in narrowband mode, yes.
1: Aside from uh, working in radio wavelengths, uh, do you detect masers in any other wavelengths?
2: Well, I, I believe the the Herschel satellite has detected some in the um, sort of long wave infrared.
1: So, uh, uh, kind of that region where the infrared becomes microwave radiation.
2: Yes, yes.
1: The kind of a funny gray area in the electromagnetic spectrum.
2: Yeah, so there are there are far infrared lasers, if you like.
1: So, is there uh, aside from doing the background research on new updates and uh, mazers, what else uh, did you find different about writing this book compared to your normal uh, research experiences?
2: Uh, well, it's it's very it's very time-consuming work, I would say. There there are a lot of things that you have to think about, like getting copyright permission for figures. Uh, you have to try and obey the deadlines that the. Uh, publisher's set, and though I broke mine several times, I have to admit.
1: Okay, well, thank you for being on the show, Malcolm.
2: Right, thank you for inviting me.
0: Thanks for that, George. Now for our interview, Christina talks to Dr. René Breton about neutron star masses.
3: Joining me now is Dr. René Breton from the University of Southampton. Hello. Hi. Um, and he's just given a really, really interesting talk on measuring pulsar masses in Black Widow and Redback systems. So can you tell us what those actually are?
4: Yeah, they're actually not uh, spiders, as you (laughs) may think. Uh, Black Widows and and Redbacks are actually um, neutron star binaries. Um, So you have have a neutron star, which is orbited by a small star, about the mass of uh, Jupiter, or a few times the mass of Jupiter, in a very compact orbit, typically a few hours um, is the orbital period of these systems. And um, they're characterized by the fact that the uh, neutron star is very powerful, very energetic. So it emits a lot of um, relativistic uh, radiation, which um, heats up the uh, the companion and uh, basically make one side of the companion really, really bright and hot. Whereas the other side that's facing away from the neutron star is very cold. And so you have like this half hot and half cold star and uh, it turns out that the radiation of the neutron star is so intense that it's actually ablating the surface of the companion, and so it peels off layers of gas around, which is why we call them black widow because it's a little bit like the analogy of these insects that uh, eat their uh, their mate after uh, after mating.
3: Um. So you said that that it oblates the the other star. What do you mean by oblate?
4: Yeah so be more or less what's happening is that um the uh the wind of the of the energetic neutron star is um is basically blasting away the gas at the surface of the companion um just a little bit like if uh, you have a very powerful fan that's uh that's uh, blowing away uh, gas.
3: Okay. Okay so if it's always happening sort of on one side, does the, does the companion star not really rotate at all?
4: It does rotate. Um, the only thing that's uh, very special in, in these systems is that um, the um, rotational period is actually the same as the orbital period, uh, which means that uh, the star, the companion star, is al- always uh, presenting the same side to the neutron star. So it's just like the the moon around the Earth, actually. Um, so we all always see the same side of the moon. Um, so it's exactly the same thing in these systems. But basically, as one side is being peeled away very slowly, uh, the the gas just the gas will just um, you know like circulate and things remain in equilibrium, basically.
3: Okay, so you get one side with a lot, basically, with a lot more. Gas on it from the other side, because it's sort of being blasted towards that way.
4: Yeah, but because the uh, because gravity uh, pulls from every di- direction, basically, the there's always gas that's sort of um, going towards the front side to make things in, in equilibrium, basically. Okay. So okay. there's no imbalance, really.
3: So, so how do you actually? Because um, your tools on measuring the masses of the pulsars, how do you actually do that?
4: So we can use these systems to uh, measure the mass of the neutron star um, because if you look at them uh, using an optical telescope at wavelengths visible uh, with our own eyes, um, what happens is that you see color variations. Um, And uh, so if you picture um, the system to be seen almost edge on, uh, what happens is that sometimes in part of the orbit, you see the hot, irradiated side. And when the system is viewed like half an orbit later, uh, you see the cold side. And if the orbit instead is seen uh, more face-on, then you always see a half hot and a half uh, cold star. So basically, uh, we can model the light curves of these uh, companions in order to infer the orbital inclination in the system. And this is basically one of the key elements that's missing when we observe these systems To determine the mass of the neutron star so we combine that with observations made with radio telescopes such as the uh, the Jottle bank telescope in order to uh, determine the velocity of the pulsar and then using the inclination angle that we measure from the observation of the companion then altogether uh, we can use that to solve for the mass of the neutron star
3: so it takes quite a lot of a lot of observation in Collaboration with with models to get it all to work. And...
4: Yes, exactly. The uh, like making this happen, you know, is really the result of like a synergy of like observations between observer- astronomers specialized in radio observations and also optical astronomers. And so you have to put all, that all together in order to uh, to be able to achieve the uh, the mass measurement in the end.
3: You said that you had to sort of measure the light curves of this. Um, how often do you have to take observations for that?
4: Uh, in principle, we're um, fine if we observe only a single orbit of uh, one such system. And as long as we get a good coverage and data throughout the entire orbit, uh, th- this is sufficient. Um, what usually happens is that um, when we look at the star, uh, it's not necessarily up in the sky um, for an entire night or for long enough that we can cover the entire orbit in a continuous fashion. So most of the time, we actually have to observe little chunks of the orbit on different nights and stitch all the data together in order to to have a, a full orbit. Another thing we have to take into consideration is that there might be variability either intrinsic to the, the system or also um, just due to experimental errors. So it's usually better if we are able to observe a couple of orbits in order to build up enough um, statistics to really get uh, accurate light curves that will yield to the, the mass measurement.
3: Cool. How how long is a typical orbit? Is, is there a typical orbit? Does it vary a lot?
4: Um, so these Black Widow systems... Um, in order to get the irradiation, you need the orbit to be fairly compact, because if the uh, the companion star is too far away, uh, basically uh, the uh, the energetic wind from the neutron star will have faded out by the time it reaches it. So we're talking about orbits in which uh, the, uh, the orbital period is the order of like a few hours. So the shortest we know of is maybe two hours, and the longest is the order of like 10, 12 hours. And when you extend beyond twelve hours, um, the orbital separation becomes too large, and then it's not energetic enough to uh, produce these your variations that we're looking for.
3: Okay, so they're quite they're quite short um, orbital systems for for this sort of observation.
4: Yes, indeed, and actually, this is a, this is a bit of a puzzle in terms of a, like scientific puzzle because um, it it turns out it's very difficult to form binary systems that are so compact. Um, orbits that are the order of a day or a few days are more easily formed, and the reason for that is uh, when these binary system evolves like prior to the formation of the neutron star, you have transfer of mass from the bigger star the more massive one to the less massive one and then thing the rows will interchange once the uh, the neutron star has formed so the little companion, tends to puff up at some point when it becomes a a giant star and will transfer mass to the neutron star. And what happens is that um, the orbit, just by conservation of energy and conservation of what we call the angular momentum, uh, the orbit will tend to expand. So in order to get a really short uh, orbital period, it means you sort of need to start with an orbit that's prior even shorter than that, or you need a mechanism that will make it shrink, and so this is a lot of uh, fine tuning for the, uh, the the models of uh, the way we think binary systems evolve, and it's still a bit puzzling because we don't quite understand how we can end up with systems that are so compact.
3: So there's still a lot of work being done on this area of of how a binary system formation with pulsars. Uh,
4: yes, indeed. Uh, for instance, uh, there's a uh, this one system that I'm working on in which. Uh, the mass of the neutron star appears to be fairly large. Uh, it might be the most massive we actually observed so far, uh, with a mass roughly uh, 2.2 times the mass of uh, our sun. And um, we think, at least we used to think, that um, ulcers are born with a rather canonical mass of 1.4 sort of mass.
3: So they all pretty much have that mass.
4: Yeah, yeah, that at least that's the the sort of uh, canonical picture, and so this would mean that the pulsar almost accreted uh, one mass of the sun onto its surface to go from one point four to two point two or so solar mass, and um, we know this is this can happen during the the mass transfer, uh, except that if you accumulate so much mass, then the orbital parameters will change in such a way that is almost impossible to end up the way we observe the system right now. So at most the that pulse that neutron star uh, probably accumulated maybe 0.1 to 0.2 or 0.3 solar mass in the past. So it sort of shows that probably neutron stars are not all born with masses around 1.4 solar mass, but some of them for reasons that we don't quite understand. Maybe it's common, maybe it's rare, but some might be born with masses that are much larger than we used to think.
3: Okay. So yeah. so how many of these systems are sort of out there? Are there a lot known?
4: Um, at this point, we have roughly 20 candidates or so. Uh, I say candidates because um, in some cases, we know they are irradiated systems like that. In other cases, we are still at the point where Basically, they're just brandly new, newly discovered, and uh, we have to look for the, the signature of the companion in using optical telescopes. Um, what's interesting is that um, prior to the launch of the Fermi gamma ray telescopes in the the mid two thousand, we only knew three or so of these systems, and all of a sudden we went from three in something like twenty in the span of like five years. And this is because of the fact that these uh, these pulsars that are like the neutron star is we know it as a pulsar, which means um, it emits um, flashes of light uh, in the radio, and uh, we detected them using uh, the Fermi telescope because they they are very bright gamma ray sources. So the way we find them now uh, most of the time is that the Fermi telescope looks in the sky, makes pictures and then sometimes we see a bright point source and uh, when we can't associate uh, one of such point sources to um, a galaxy or an, an object that we know pr- uh, in a catalogue or something then we take a radio telescope and we just stare at this location for a long time and we try to see if there's any radio pulsations and in uh, a fair number of uh, uh, occasions we actually do find pulsations, and then they turn out as radio pulsars as well. So that's, that's how we find these new uh, these new systems.
3: Oh, brilliant. Yeah. Are they? Do they tend to be sort of with? They're within our galaxy.
4: Yes, indeed. Um, pretty much. Well, basically all pulsars that we know of, or neutron stars that we know of, are located in our galaxy um, and relatively nearby. Um, so the uh, out of these uh, black widow pulsars, uh, the furthest that we know of is at a distance of maybe two and a half to three kiloparsec. So in terms of uh, light years, that means uh, about um, maybe five thousand light years or so. Uh, so it seems pretty far, uh, but this is actually roughly galactic neighborhood in relatively terms of, close in yeah. the galaxy terms yeah <laughs>
3: <laughs> okay well thank you very much for the interview and it was really nice hearing your talk
4: my pleasure thank you
0: thanks for that christina now we come to the part of the show where we feed all of those other things we can't feed anywhere else the odds and ends so adam what do you have for us today
5: so it, it seems that uh, astronomers have observed the brightest X-ray flare ever seen from the black hole at the center of our galaxy. Wow. So this is uh, something they observed with the Chandra X-ray telescope, and the flare itself was uh, 150 times brighter than the ones regularly observed. So the, the black hole flares quite regularly, but they're usually much weaker than this one. Wow! And so
0: how, how did it happen?
5: Well, the the reason that these flares happen is not entirely clear. Um, it is thought that maybe asteroids and maybe wandering planets are coming too close to the black hole and sort of getting captured and consumed by the black hole, and then the energy released is, is their last sort of gasp of existence, which is kind of cool and uh, slightly terrifying. But we are all safe from black holes. Everyone thinks they're these massive, massive destroyers of... Of galaxies Which in the universe, they are. <laughs> they are, but only if you get close enough, right? Because okay. yeah. we're we're orbiting them, so we're not going to fall in anytime soon, right? So yeah, um, we're not suddenly going to like um, Wiley e. Coyote in the Roadrunner cartoons, you know, where he just he's flying along and then realizes that he's above nothing and then he just drops. It's not going <laughs> to yeah. happen like that. We, but the the really the the interesting thing about about this observation is that whilst they don't know what causes these flares entirely, the the these bright occurrences do give you more information than the the little weak ones. So hopefully things like this will help us understand what's causing the flares in the centre of the galaxy.
0: Awesome.
6: I really like all this stuff to do with the galactic centre because it's something that, I don't know, 15 years ago we didn't really know much about because you can't really see into the centre of the galaxy in visible light. And now we know that there's a 4 million solar mass black hole in there and that it's consuming stuff and it's even been possible to see gas clouds falling into it and things like that. It's quite... Amazing. What we now know is right at the center of our own galaxy.
0: Yeah, it's a monster eating. <laughs> <laughs> that is pretty cool. Um, so actually, talking about people eating and, and consuming stuff, I'm, my ordinance my is about one of the best objects in the universe. I was going to say best objects in the world. It's actually in the universe. So this is an ESO press release about a planetary nebula. With the VLT, they observe a planetary nebula with uh, jets coming out of it. So then they modelled the whole process and how how can you observe these jets in planetary nebulae. And it's very interesting because there's a lot of controversy thinking that how how do you form from one star very symmetrical stuff? How do you form these asymmetrical shapes and and the morphology in planetary nebulae that we observe? So they actually modelled, and the model says that it has to be two white dwarfs orbiting each other. And they're actually really, really close. So the orbital period is about 1.2 days which is really, really close. Wow. But these are two white doors, so white doors are really compact. The masses are between 0.5 and 1 solar masses. So if you imagine that one of them is evolving and then becomes a red giant when it's really big, it kind of sweeps in the other one because they're really close. And then the one that is inside starts sucking the material from the other one. And it's actually called... Well, they call it... It's it's quite cool. They call it um, stellar vampire, (laughs) which I really like. And it's good for the time of the year, I guess. Um, So then when this other star is sucking the material, it forms a disk. And this disk around it, so it's like an accretion disk, is kind of oscillating. So it's kind of moving because it's not very stable yet. And this oscillation will produce these very collimated jets that we observe. So... It matched really well. It's really interesting. The, the, one of the main things is that actually having two by, two white dwarfs, because this is one like new thing. We will normally expect to have a main sequence stars and a white dwarf, but this is two white dwarfs. The other good thing is that in the team that observed this is a former Jodcaster, Dave Jones, and that he did his PhD here and then he moved to do his postdoc at ESO, and he has this press release, which is a paper in science, which is pretty awesome.
6: So Jodcaster's.
2: Doing, doing pretty brilliant well. Time, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
6: So is the planetary nebula actually kind of a mashup of two planetary nebulae, like parts from each of the two stars?
0: Well, the one that is sucking the material will probably be a planetary nebula after. But, oh, okay, so it's this not. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. So this is one becoming PN, but already in a like a binary system when mm. when the other one is sucking the material and they have the disk and they have these jets that it's kind of if you think about it it's pretty similar to the star formation stages when you have one star with a disk and jets uh, around it the the red giant one will become PN so ionizes everything around it and then what you see is these the jets and the whole nebula around the whole thing so the binaries are very close inside the PN
6: but the jets are giving away the fact that there's two stars then I mean you can't Look into the middle and see that there are two white dwarfs there.
0: You can't resolve both white dwarfs. That's a problem. I mean, just yet. We might be able to do it. There's some techniques that you could use um, infrared interferometry, and sometimes you resolve that there's a second one. But I think from these observations, they have observations, they have UV data for one of them, and, and it, it falls into the white dwarf. But because you have these jets and everything, the models predict that it has to be another one creating this. Oscillation of the disk and jets.
6: Well, for my odd end, I'm going to try and best Adam's brightest flare with a most distant supernova ever. <laughs> awesome. That's to say, ever found by humans. <laughs> um, it's, well, a pair of supernovae actually discovered using a couple of telescopes in Hawaii the Canada France Hawaii telescope and the Keck 1 telescope. And they've discovered supernovae, that's to say, exploding stars at redshifts of about 2 and about 3.9. Which wow. means, well, for the three point nine one, that means that it went off, as far as we know, about 1.5 billion years after the Big Bang, which is 12 billion years ago. So it's a long time ago and it's very, very far away. And that redshift is taking account of how the universe has mm-hmm. expanded as that light's been travelling to us. So apart from just being cool as being the furthest away supernova, these two that have been discovered are the second and third examples of what are thought to be a type of supernova called the pair instability supernova. So although we tend to imagine that a supernova is just one thing, you know, the way a star explodes at the end of its life when it's run out of fuel, um, they're actually caused by a few different mechanisms. And all you've really got is your observations to see how long it takes to brighten and then dim again, and also the spectrum, which means the different frequencies of light that you see. Mm -hmm. And then you've got to try and work out what actually caused it. And Most supernovae are thought to be caused by what they call electron capture. So that means that as the star is running out of fuel and it begins to collapse, electrons and protons actually get forced together, which produces a neutron, but also a neutrino, a little ghost of a particle, <laughs> which kind of spirits away a lot of the energy and hastens the collapse. And that's how we think most supernovas happen. Yeah. But these supernovae, because we're seeing them virtually on the other side of the universe, we know they're really, really bright. They're thought to be caused by extremely massive stars, something like 200 times the mass of the Sun. And it's thought to be a process called pair instability, which is where it gets so hot inside the collapsing star's core that gamma rays, that's to say photons of light that are produced, have so much energy that when they interact with atoms, the light just spontaneously turns into an electron and positron pair, so a pair of particles, matter and antimatter, and that electron and positron is not then providing the, the heat or the, the pressure that normally keeps a star inflated. So again, as that happens, the star collapses more, and it's a runaway process. And it's thought to be so violent that the entire star gets blown apart, leaving nothing, like no black hole, no neutron star
0: mm-hmm. or
6: anything. So now we have three examples of what are thought to be pair-instability supernovas.
0: Awesome. So are these, are these the first stars?
6: Not quite, okay. almost. So what what they really want to find, the people that are doing this work, is some of the first generation of stars that existed in the universe, because yeah. it's thought that they would be made just entirely of hydrogen and helium, mm-hmm. because all the other heavier elements we think are produced in stars during their lives. Now these supernovae, the spectra, show that they're probably part of a second generation, but okay. they could be contemporary with the very first stars. And a supernova is a great way to... To see a star, I mean, it's cheating in a way, because obviously the star is is exploding. Yeah. <laughs> but because it's so bright, you can actually be looking at a galaxy really far away. And suddenly, when the supernova happens, the brightness actually dominates over the whole of the rest of the galaxy.
0: Yeah.
6: And so it's things that you can't expect to see in our galaxy too often. You know, maybe once in a few hundred years, supernovas of this kind of brightness, if that. But if you're looking deep into the universe, they're so bright that you can actually see these events happening. And they have done.
5: Awesome. That's really cool.
6: And so from there to the man who puts the super into supernova, it's Dr. Ian MacDonald answering your astronomical questions.
0: Hello. I'm here with Dr. Ian MacDonald for the Ask an Astronomer questions, and we have three questions this month. So the first question says, It occurred to me, From our point of view, the observable universe is between 13 and 14 billion years old. Could it, in fact, be much older, but we just can't see it? This is from Paul Walsh.
7: In a word, no. We know quite accurately how old the universe is by how fast galaxies are expanding away from each other, but we don't actually know how big it is. Now, if you imagine the universe as a crowd big event like a football match or the Paul Weller concert at Jodrell Bank, where each spectator is an entire galaxy... Now the moment that the event stops, everyone rushes out to their cars, keen to beat the rest of the traffic away. Now that's our big bang. Once we're on the road, all the traffic begins to spread out in all directions, and each driver can only see a small number of cars towards that match or the concert width. Now the others are beyond his horizon, and that's true of the universe too. Most of the universe, and we don't know how much, lies beyond our observable horizon. That's the cosmic microwave background there are plenty of other galaxies in the unobservable part of the universe that we will never know exist. Now in our scenario, each car is travelling at a different speed and in a different direction, so they're all moving away from each other, getting more and more distant from all the neighbours, just the same as all the galaxies in the universe are moving further away from each other. If we think of that another way, we know that each car is getting further away from the others, so there must have been a point in time previously when they were very close together, at the football match, at the concert, whatever it was. Now, if we know the speed at which each car is travelling, we can work out how long it took to get from the match to where it is now. And the same applies to galaxies. We know how fast they're moving away from us, so we can trace that back in time to work out that they must have been in the same place about 13.7 billion years ago, at the Big Bang. So that's how we know how old the universe is, at least in its current incarnation, but the reason we can only see part of it is that light has only had a finite time to cross the universe. The universe is 13.7 billion years old, so we can only see things that's 13.7 billion light years away. Light just hasn't had time to reach us from the rest of the universe.
0: Very good, thank you. Um, the second question says, I recall as a kid we will always fear that it will be Betelgeuse or some other red giant that was most likely to go supernova. I wondered if experts on stellar evolution had pet stars they kept an eye on which star should be watching. This is from Cass Lieber.
7: Well, very thankfully, I am an expert in stellar evolution, and we are keeping an eye on several stars. But that's not because we think we're going supernova tomorrow, but because they're <laughs> doing interesting things. Uh, in fact, I'm currently helping out in a project that's observed Betelgeuse with E-Merlin, which Jodrell Bank runs. We're trying to look at the surface of Betelgeuse and see if it's got any features like star spots on it. That's really quite hard because, although Betelgeuse is one of the widest stars as it appears in the sky. It's only 50th of an arc-second across, which is a few millionths for the width of the Moon. That's enough of my research. Back to supernovae. (laughs) Yes, we are expecting Betelgeuse to go supernovae, but it could be any time in the next million years or so. More immediately, Eta Carina is probably going to go first, but that's only visible from the southern hemisphere. Eta Carina is a much more massive star, maybe as much as 150 times the mass of the Sun originally, and it could easily become a supernova sooner than Betelgeuse, but still probably not for another few hundred million years. See, the problem is that we don't know what's going on in the middle of the star. The light we see from stars, including the Sun, began as gamma rays inside the star's core, and although they travel at the speed of light, each photon gets bounced around and absorbed, re-radiated many times before they leave the solar as the rather less energetic visible light we see. Now, a gamma ray produced in the star's core will take many thousands, even millions of years, to find its way to the stellar surface. So the light we see from stars was originally produced way back in prehistory, even if they're close by. Now, this extraordinary time delay means that we won't know if a star is going supernova until it happens to actually blast the star apart from inside out. But in any case, it wouldn't lose much sleep over it. The chance of either star going supernova in anyone's lifetime is really quite small. Even if they do, they're unlikely to have any major impact on life on Earth. Just think of supernovae as rare, pretty events that you'd be quite fortunate to witness. Supernovae go off in our galaxy roughly every hundred years or so, and maybe one in three of these is close enough to the Earth so that we can see it with the naked eye. So keep looking for them. One day someone's going to find the next one. It's probably going to be an amateur astronomer. But it's probably going to be from some obscure, barely-charted star in some far-flung corner of the galaxy, not one of our local-friendly (laughs) supergiants.
0: Okay. And we have the third question said, I've just watched a simulation of the merger of the Milky Way and Andromeda in around 5 billion years. I wonder how much longer it will be before the supermassive black holes merge and what the effects will be when it happens. This is from
7: Philippe LeRiche. Well, in about 5 billion years, or so, the Sun will be going through its death throes and any remaining descendants of humanity will long since have had to jump ship and venture out into the galaxy. So how is the Andromeda Galaxy crashing into ours going to affect them? Well, galaxies fall into ours all the time. There are several small galaxies, like the Magellanic Clouds and the Sagittarius Dwarf Galaxy, which are currently being slowly shredded and incorporated into our galaxy as we speak. But it's rare for something the size of Andromeda to crash into us. Andromeda is slightly bigger than the Milky Way. Our galaxy hasn't experienced a collision of that magnitude yet. Now in everyday terms, not very much will happen when the galaxies collide. The space between stars is very big, and they'll just shoot past each other. The real danger to any life in the galaxy will be the sonic boom. Now gas in between stars is very tenuous. We all know that in space no one can hear you scream. But when you get as big a smash as a couple of galaxies colliding together, you end up with a pretty loud bang as two unimaginably large quantities of gas and dust plough into each other at several hundred miles a second. Now this bang collapses the dust clouds in both galaxies and that will trigger the birth of an awful lot of stars, followed a few million years later by an awful lot of supernovae. And that's perhaps not the best time to be around. Now, it'll be a long time before the supermassive black holes merge in the galaxy's centre. Exactly how long that will take depends on exactly how the galaxies collide. We don't really know that very well. The black holes will first start to orbit around each other, and before they merge, they're going to have to lose all that orbital energy, and there's quite a lot of it. Now this happens in two stages. First, they'll try and shrink their orbits by taking any stars foolish enough to approach them, flinging them out of the merging galaxy. This slows the black holes down through a process we call dynamical friction. But it only works if stars are between the two black holes. Once they have thrown out all the nearby stars, they have to shrink their orbits another way. And they do this by giving off gravitational waves. The process of giving off gravitational waves slowly spirals the orbits in, but that could take many billions or even trillions or quadrillions of years. And by that time we've probably got bigger problems to worry about, like the death of all stars, or dark energy's big rip. Now what will happen if they do merge? Well eventually they'll be in such a tight orbit they'll be giving off some of the strongest gravitational radiation our galaxy can ever expect to see. But gravitational radiation is really rather weak, and it still wouldn't be noticeable by an average person on Earth. Eventually, their shrinking orbits will bring their event horizons into contact, though, and when that happens, it will be the biggest non-event in galactic history. (laughs) The event horizon is only the visible edge of the black hole, inside of which nothing can escape. And when the event horizons come into contact, the black holes themselves, the singularities in the centre, still haven't merged. If and when that happens, it will unleash a relativistic nightmare that I don't want to think about. Because all this happens within the event horizon of the merging black hole, if anyone's still around, they won't see a thing.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Ian, and thank you everyone for sending questions. Thanks for that, Ian. So now on to the feedback. Um, we got some posts from Bill Keck too. He sent us a postcard with a candlelit HR diagram, which is a herspern Russell diagram. So it's the sequence of the stars, which is pretty awesome actually. So in a hertzsprung russell diagram, you will see luminosity versus temperature, and it will give you where the stars, the main sequence, and then uh, red giant, and then white dwarf stars fall into this uh, sequence, and it's from the BBC. So thank you very much, Bale. It's pretty yeah, cool. Yeah, it's
5: really cool, that thing.
0: Yeah.
5: <laughs> we should try and recreate that in the... Uh, in we the should, yeah. because <laughs> he the... fire
6: alarms, though, if it candles. <laughs>
5: <laughs> yeah.
6: <laughs> On the email, we had some Ask an Astronomer questions, which will be added to the list, so thank you very much for those. And on the forum, thank you again for the post there. On
5: Facebook, we had a message from Katie Calvert, who said, Well done on another good show, and welcome to the newest member of the team, which I think was Indy. She looks forward to hearing more from him and the field of research that he's working in. And uh, she did ask about whether we're doing a panto or not this year, and... We don't know the answer to that question yet, so uh, keep listening to the JODCast. You you might well find out.
6: On Twitter, LeMoustier posted a nice message saying, if you like astronomy, the JODCast is excellent with very detailed interviews with astronomy researchers, but explaining it all. So that's kind of captured what we're all about. Thank you very much for that. And also thanks to everyone else for the Follow Fridays and the retweets.
0: And if you want to get in touch, you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
6: On the forum at forum.jodcast.net. On Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast.
0: On Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast.
5: On YouTube at youtube.com
6: slash Jodcast. On Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash Jodcast.
0: And don't forget that you can send us posts and the addresses on the website. Thanks to René Breton and Malcolm Gray for the interviews. The editors were Mark Pervert, Adam Avison, Liz Guzman and Indy Leclerc. And the producer was Adam Avison. Until next time,
2: Jod Jod on. on!